Hello everyone, and welcome back to Art Histories. I'm coming at you with episode 6, and the slightly terrifying announcement that we are three quarters of the way through the series now. This project has been such a daunting but hugely rewarding undertaking for me, and producing every episode is truly a delight. It's been so wonderful to receive feedback from you and hear that you're listening and enjoying what I'm creating. The rest of the series is such a treat, so I hope you'll stay tuned. In the meantime, this week's show is just lovely, and I can't wait to share it with you. Sitting in the Art Histories chair for episode six is the gorgeous Jenny Wellard. But I just found it so relatable as like how mundane life can be and then something can happen that's completely out of your, cha- out of your control and then all of a sudden but it's something that's so simple and your world's changed, how the ordinary person can be extraordinary. Jenny really is one of the nicest people I've ever met, and it was so lovely to connect with her on a deeper level through this episode. Jenny is kind, thoughtful, and always putting others before herself. She's my first mother on the series, and you can really hear it in the tender way she discusses not just the art that she loves, but the people she invests in and her passions. This show represented worlds unknown for me, as Jenny is a keen cosplayer, and it was fascinating to hear about how it's an outlet through which she expresses her enjoyment of sci-fi and fantasy texts. If you're feeling disillusioned with the real world and longing for adventure, escapism, and stories that capture the imagination whilst exploring very human experiences and emotions, this episode is for you. Without further ado... I think it's time to get going with the episode and meet Jenny. Here we go. Hello, Jenny. Hello, Olivia. Welcome to Art Histories. It's such a joy to have you here with me today. Um, It's lovely to see your face, even if it is through a screen. I think it's probably been about four months since we properly saw each other last, hasn't it? It must have been around Christmas time, I think. Oh yeah, no, we were working. I forgot about that. Yeah, we have worked recently. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. As we speak, the UK is opening up its entertainment industry again, slowly but surely, and it means that we have the hope of working together again in the very near future, which is very exciting. Absolutely. I'm so pleased that I get the opportunity to chat to you today, uh, not only to catch up, but also to get to know you a little bit better. If you've been lurking around these parts for the rest of the series, um, firstly, I should say thank you. Um, And secondly, you'll be familiar with how this works. But if you're not, this podcast aims to provide a raw, intimate study of the power of the arts by inviting one guest on a week to talk about three pieces of art. And when I say art, I mean films or TV shows or music that have moulded them or shaped the course of their lives somehow. Jenny, I can't wait to talk about your choices today. Um, You've led me down a distinctly fandom-esque route with your picks. (laughs) And I loved every second of it. Are you ready to get going? Let's go. Yeah? Fab. The only other tradition that I have on this show before we begin talking about my guests' chosen pieces, and again, if you've listened to even five minutes of this podcast before, you'll be infinitely familiar with this, but I like to talk to each of my guests about how I know them. I find it sets the tone nicely for the rest of the show. So Jenny, how do we know each other? Well, we've already touched on it, don't we? We work together. 
we do. <laughs> we met at ATG. And um, you might have noticed that I've had quite a few people from my job on this series so far, but I was quite firm on the fact that I didn't want this to be a university centric podcast. And one of the things I've enjoyed so much about my time working in a theatre is the opportunity to connect with people also interested in the arts from a variety of backgrounds. And you and I were people who connected pretty soon after I joined, I think. I was probably put on shift with you quite a bit in one way or another. I feel like we did spend a lot of time together. Yeah, I think because, like, the first time I think we actually met each other, we were getting slightly drunk on stage. So you probably saw a bit more, like, out there version of me (laughs) because I'm usually quite shy and I don't introduce myself to people and... And like I tend to sort of watch from the sidelines what's going on. Yeah, I really struggled to find my place, but I think you saw a bit more, like a bit more outgoing version of me. Definitely, I saw this this vibrant, bubbly woman, and you were bouncing around, and I thought, wow, this woman, this woman has a lot of energy. Yeah, and like everyone else who I've met, you never believe that I am actually thirty two with four kids. No, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's interesting because when I did start to work with you, you are obviously a little bit more reserved than that. But um, we had so many nice conversations on shift together. We spent a lot of the lulls in our shifts together, getting to know one another or rehashing our weeks. Sometimes there was a lot to get through. (laughs) Um, And one thing I've always loved about how well you and I get on is that we couldn't be more different in terms of the stages of our lives that we're Mm. at. You know, you are you're happily married with four beautiful children. And I am obviously nowhere near that um (laughs) but it's never impacted how well we've gotten on or the value of the conversations that we have I knew I wanted to have you on the show because when I first launched this series on my birthday you were one of the first people to message me with your support and to say that you'd love to be a guest at some point since the series was born I've been lucky enough to have some wonderful feedback from colleagues and peers but that soon after launching was quite a nerve-wracking time for me in terms of gauging interest for the show and it meant so much to have that message from you expressing your friendship. So hopefully I've done you justice with the show today. I'm really excited to start. Cool. Are you ready to get going? Yeah, let's go for it. I mean, you want to dive into Doctor Who? We could be here a while. <laughs> so the first of your choices today is Doctor Who, but more specifically, you've chosen the Russell T Davies era of Doctor Who. Yes. Doctor Who is a British sci-fi television series broadcast by BBC One since 1963, depicts the adventures of a Time Lord called simply The Doctor, an extraterrestrial being who appears to be human. The Doctor explores the universe in a time-travelling spaceship called the TARDIS and has various adventures there. And we're talking specifically today about the Russell T. Davies era, which covers the series from the years 2005 to 2010. Now, Jenny, you are not my first Whovian on the show. If you're not new here, you'll remember when this show was on the radio, I had my dear friend Dan Stubbs-Bembo on as a guest, and he too chose the series to discuss. But you are my first Whovian to specify an era to talk about. So can I start by asking, what is it about the Russell T Davies era that made you choose it for today's show? Um, Well, I think I just like the way, because I've only really done New Who. I'm I'm aware, and I know what happens in Classic Who, but I haven't watched it, but I know new who and there's just like a theme running through his series like series one is bad wolf series two is torchwood Mm -hmm. but you don't realize it's happening until everything comes together at the end there's just Mm. something like almost every episode that ties it and then at the end you're like oh my god that worked all the way through and then um the other part of this is that i like how well-rounded he makes the whole world 
because mm. um, there's a whole world outside the doctor's world as well. Mm. Like he, she come, they come back, and there's a family, and there's stuff going on, and you're just as invested in Jackie as you are in Rose. And he just evolves the characters so much more than what's on screen. What you see of Mickey, and then what you read of Mickey, they're like almost two different characters, but you mesh them together. You're like, Mickey's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the friend everyone wants to have so i just love the way he just made the whole world and it's not just like mm. all its grand adventures it's like there's life as well so i think it would be very easy because definitely if you look at the vein of doctor who prior to russell t davies's um stint on the show you know there's a lot more focus on obviously the adventures that take place and the storylines themselves and that's that's great but i think one of the things that i'm going to get into a little bit later is um the changes that Russell T Davies made to the series when he came in as a writer and the fleshed out worlds that he created, I think they're so much more satisfying for an audience member to watch. Was this era the first Doctor Who era you were introduced to or immersed yourself in? Or was it one that kind of cemented your love for the series? Like, had you been watching prior to that? I said, I haven't watched any of the classic Who. I knew about it and I know more about it now. But my first episode I watched was Father's Day. And then mm-hmm. I went back. Uh, this is how old I was. I went. I couldn't go back and just watch them whenever I wanted. I waited for them to be re-aired on BBC Three. <laughs> <laughs> That's how old I am. I couldn't just binge watch them whenever I wanted. So yeah, I eventually saw them all. And Christopher Oxton and Billy Piper. And then obviously you got all the extra work, like Jackie and Mickey and Pete. And it's all there. And you, I just found it. A especially what 2005 so I was just Mm -hmm. a bit younger than the character Rose was portrayed so it was just very relatable to me but I just found it so relatable as like how mundane life can be and then something can happen that's completely out out of your control and then all of a sudden but it's something that's so simple and your world's changed how the ordinary person can be extraordinary. Yes. When did you when did you realize that the Russell T Davies era had a different feel to other eras of Doctor Who? So how how did you come to the realization that this era was more special for you than others perhaps? I think it's probably because that's the one I grew up with and then when Stephen Moffat came in and it started losing some of the elements that I love. I mean like mm. the family background um, Amy had a bit of that, Rory had a bit of that, but there wasn't they didn't have best friends that you knew off the show. They didn't know. They didn't have a family that you knew off the show. Um, so I, I sort of I saw that going, and there were still the stories. And there's amazing. They, they touched on so many different things. Vincent and the Doctor. Have mm-hmm. you seen that one? Vincent Van Gogh. That episode. Oh, yeah, that is so t- beautiful. On yeah, me- mental health as well, and like there were so many different things that are part of it. But Russell's series just sort of had all of that. Mm. the family and the things that they touched on and especially um in the bad wolf episode where rose is like you don't just sit still you stand up you say something and you're like well why don't we all do that when something's going wrong mm. then like if you see something going wrong you just walk past it you're just a part of the problem whereas if you mm. stand up and say something and something's going to change and obviously that's a conversation that's so relevant to all areas of life and yeah. particularly at the moment when there seems to be so much going on it's really interesting that a sci-fi program that you wouldn't normally consider to explore these very human themes and emotions and experiences is is taking 
that sort of stance on something and actually it's something you can watch as a viewer and not realize but absorb it into your own life as one of the things I find so interesting about sci-fi and something I discovered when I was researching Doctor Who not just this time but the first time I did it for this show is that it does take these very real human themes that you can relate to and puts them in a context that's just far enough away from your own life that you don't necessarily relate it back but you can still take those key themes and ideas from it and move forward with those values that you that you get from the show and I think that's that's so clever. So Russell T Davies, he'd been watching Doctor Who since the first Doctor's regeneration into the second Doctor at the end of the 1966 serial The Tenth Planet, and by the mid-70s he was regularly writing reviews of the serials in his diary. And Doctor Who kicked off his screenwriting career, so he made a Doctor Who submission in 1987 for a spec script set on an intergalactic news aggregator and broadcaster which was rejected by the script editor at the time. And this script was eventually retooled and transmitted as The Long Game in 2005. And during the late 90s, Davies lobbied the BBC to revive the show from its hiatus and reached discussion stages in late 1998 and early 2002. And we've touched on this, but the era brought lots of changes to the format and feel of the show. The episodes were changed from 25 minutes to 50 minutes, for example. Um, And there were predominantly episodes on Earth, which kind of emulated the style of the third Doctor episodes. The mythology and the excess science fiction was trimmed down a lot by Davies, um, which kind of allowed us more as, as viewers to play into those human themes and ideas. And this series was recorded on film instead of videotape. So... I'm kind of getting a feel from the way that you talk about it, but there is a great love for the Russell T Davies era, not just amongst you, but many Whovians. They really love it. It's generally considered the golden era of Doctor Who by fans. Um, Do you agree with this? Um, I don't tend to sort of pigeonhole them into this is the best, this is the worst. If I like something, I like it. I don't really Mm. care what everyone else is saying. I can be a big fan of someone but not know everything about what's going on in their life. I, I can like them in something and not know they're in something else. Mm. But um, there's a lot that's very true for David Tennant. <laughs> I know I like him and there is stuff that I will love to watch him in, but there is stuff I know he is not in that I have not watched and I have no interest in watching just because he's in it. Because mm. I know he's a very well-rounded actor. He does all sorts So you've touched on David Tennant as a doctor and we do know that he was one of the two doctors that Russell T Davies wrote for. So you've got Christopher Eccleston who only ever did one series really. If it wasn't for Christopher Eccleston we wouldn't be where we are. Mm. Because I know sure sure, other people could have been cast in that role but it wouldn't be the same. Nine came back after the time war and he's the last time lord and he mm-hmm. just had that tortured look about him and then as they work through he starts sort of humanising as it were. Mm. And I suppose that leads in quite nicely when you get the regeneration into David Tennant who obviously I remember watching and um, as a doctor he's so full of life and very human and kind of embodied a lot of the I suppose light-heartedness but I don't want to trivialise his character because I think he was a very well-rounded doctor. Yeah especially towards the end wasn't he? He started losing everything that he loved so he started going back into the tortured soul sort of stuff. Mm, But I suppose Christopher Eccleston did kind of set up that that character development so you obviously seem to have an appreciation for both of them. Do you prefer David Tennant to 
Christopher Eccleston or do you think that the era needs both of them to work in tandem for you to truly get that as a viewer yeah that is that's quite a deep question really isn't it because I don't everyone goes so who's your favorite doctor who's your doctor and I'm just like the doctor (laughs) (laughs) he's he's a character Mm. or she's a character there are attributes to all of them that I love um I wouldn't go no David Tennant Ten's my doctor because there's parts of nine I love there's parts of 11 I love and 12 and 13 they all they all mesh together and the doctor is the doctor Mm. so how do you yeah that's really interesting actually because I suppose as someone coming at it you know I grew up watching Doctor Who but obviously not on the level that that kind of people who really subscribe to the show do and I think I mainly watched for David Tennant and then quite a lot of Matt Smith as well and then obviously as most people do I think I kind of fell off of it at that point and I suppose it's easy to kind of think of those actors as being the Doctor when actually the Doctor is like this overriding character really yeah they're all the Doctor aren't they yeah it's just embodied by different people how do you reconcile with that um as a as a viewer because obviously they're all quite different and I would find it quite hard to kind of view the the Doctor as one character just kind of embodying all these different traits it sort of happened like at when during the first regeneration when Chris became David Mm. and I'm like no no David can't David Tennant he can't be the Doctor because Chris is the Doctor because I just so fell in love with the Doctor as a character and then obviously David Tennant came out and actually he really I really liked him and then I did the same when Matt became the Doctor and I was like no he's too young he can't but then he just sort of became the Doctor. It's really interesting because you you go through like a stage of grief with it, I suppose, because I remember very distinctly watching David Tennant's regeneration. And at that point, obviously, I think he'd done three or four series. At that point, everyone was very emotionally attached to David Tennant. And uh, I remember watching his regeneration and it was heartbreaking. I was quite young at the time. Um, and I'd become so invested, not in the doctor, I don't think, but in David Tennant's doctor. <laughs> Um, that I didn't know how I was going to adjust to someone new. And obviously Matt Smith came in and it was very strange. I had this whole period of thinking, no, I don't really want to let go of David Tennant's Doctor. And actually it is really interesting because as an audience member and as a viewer, and I suppose as a fan, somebody who watches the show all the way through, you do get used to going through like this mini stage of grief every time you get a regeneration. Um, And then there's an adjustment period. Even with like the 50th special, where they introduced a new doctor that was actually before all of them. So I like the 50th special as well. I know that's not Russell, but it had all my favourite characters in there as well, sort Mm. of. I think going back to kind of Davies's doctors, both of them were men who kind of, alternated between different modes you know you had these sort of darker moments where they would feel more tortured and you'd see like the lingering effects of the time war on Christopher Eccleston Um, and also towards the end of his time David Tennant as well got more serious but then these really lovely light-hearted whimsical moments as well that they articulate so well on screen and it kind of it provided a more multifaceted presentation of an extraterrestrial being which I think is really interesting Um, And one of the articles I read, which was really lovely, said that, but more than ever before, they expressed a profound joy at their own adventures and a sometimes bubbling love of humanity, foibles and all. Now more than ever, the Doctor expressed the viewer's own wonder at these fantastic adventures through time and space. Would you agree? Do you think overwhelmingly Doctor Who itself is a love letter to humanity despite the fact that it's a sci-fi series. I think so yeah I can't remember if it's one of the episodes or it's something I read or it came out somewhere but like part of it is the, the Doctor's joy exploring everything but it's the fact that he mainly has a human companion 
because he likes seeing them. It's not. It's something they wouldn't have experienced if they hadn't met him. But he, they're experiencing something that they would never expect, and then he enjoys seeing them enjoying that. I suppose it's a little bit like having children and introducing them to new things, like taking them to the beach and stuff like that. And you see the kind of yeah. the wonderment of them experiencing something that you're very used to. And I guess for the doctor, you see them enjoying that. It's like oh, that's something I used to exactly. do. Exactly. It kind of reignites your own love for it. And I suppose, yeah, that's yeah. the reason that the Doctor always has human companions is because he gets to see that kind of wonderment and it maybe reignites his love for the universe um, and also for, for humans. But one thing that I did notice particularly about David Tennant is he was always fiercely defending humanity. You know, all of the adversaries that he comes up against, all of the the aliens and the threats to not just the human race but the universe as well you know he's always vehemently defending humanity and why humans should ultimately be saved and i think that's one of the really wonderful things about the series is it takes a view of humanity from an outside perspective from an imagined outside perspective um and kind of it reminds us why we're special i suppose um it reminds us why we're worth fighting for We could be great if we're given the chance. Exactly. We've all got the chance to, to be great. Um, and I suppose, do you think that that's something that Russell T Davies kind of got the most right? Because I did see Matt Smith do that a little bit as well, but it never really hit the same kind of emotional spot for me that it did with David Tennant. Do you think that that's something that Russell T Davies did better? I'm not really sure. I've not really thought about it like that, to be honest. I mean, yeah, his first episode comes in and he's quoting The Lion King. So we're blinking, step into the sun. There's more to see than can ever be seen, more to do than can ever be mm-hmm. done. He just finds ways of like making us really think about it in ways that doesn't make us think about it. Mm-hmm. Lion King. It's really sort of... Who hasn't watched Lion King? Who doesn't know those songs? Exactly. Lyrics? It's like really simple ways of making you to think about it without thinking about it is, I think, sort of a genius way of sort of just getting the viewers involved oh definitely it's like emotional osmosis isn't it these ideas sort of seep into you without you realizing yeah um and before you know it you're taking away some of these really big like affirming ideas about the human race and kind of i think overwhelmingly optimism i think that's the kind of feel you get from the era is um is one of optimism and hope and and belief as well and i think it's it's a feeling that you come away with after you watch those those episodes you can see that as well with the evolution of the character mickey i know i've already said this but he, mm. he starts off as mickey the idiot he's clinging to rosie's leg he doesn't want to go and at the end he's saving the universe again like we said it shows anyone is capable of greatness you know if they're put in extraordinary circumstances and again through the companions we do see what happens when achingly normal people are put in these very very unusual circumstances and it's a way for us as viewers to connect to that um and also kind of i suppose return to our own lives with a little bit more hope and ambition which i also love it's interesting that you touched on companions because i really wanted to talk about those um one of the main changes that russell t davies made to the series was the role of the companions um because pre his era the companions on the show seem to kind of frequently come and go with abrupt goodbyes or sometimes none at all. Um, and RTD really fleshed out the companions as characters themselves. He gave them complex characterizations. They'd been previously used to generate romantic subtext, but uh, Russell really brought this to the forefront of the show. Hint, hint, 
Rose, um, yep. <laughs> as well as each companion being given individual hopes and fears that added to their multifaceted presentation on screen. So you've touched on it, um, but I really wanted to properly ask you, what's your relationship to the companions like as a viewer? You know, how do you feel about the companions that we see in this era? I found Rose really relatable because that was me just a couple years younger sort of mm. thing. The first thing I ever did was I went to work to the shop. So... <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then, like with Martha, that she had a very realistic sort of. She was a medical student. She was in her residency, and then, mm-hmm. like, she fell in love. And then she was like, "No, stop! This is too much. You don't love me in return. You're pining over Rose. This is like I'm good myself. I don't have to be in someone else's footsteps." Mm-hmm. And then Donna. Oh, what do we say about Donna? <laughs> <laughs> She's a whirlwind, isn't she? She is. I mean, who doesn't ha- know someone a bit like Donna? Yeah. Exactly. So they all just, they're very relatable characters, I think. They're not too out there, but mm. then they get put in a extraordinary situation. So do you see them evolve and you're like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. I can be better than I am. Do you have a favourite of those companions? Do you have a favourite companion-doctor combination? I think everyone would probably, from that era, people are going to go 10 rows, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Especially as... A lot of my cosplay that I do, I'm a 32-year-old woman and I still cosplay a 19-year-old. <laughs> um, I sort of, I've got worse of that because I've got nothing else to do, so I've gained more. And I've got friends as well. Actually, one of my friends that I've who helps me, we met at Comic-Con. And uh, yeah, he invited me to uh, a Doctor Who meetup and uh, like, I go every time when I get to go to Comic-Con. So um, he's really helped me sort of grow some of my cosplay collection as well and he's just become a good friend as well so among the rest of the series are there any particular episodes that stand out to you or that you like better than the others i don't think there's any sort of standout episodes because i like the way that they all tie in together um from a cosplay aspect the first one i did was idiot's lantern because i think that's just so fun and then uh, I, I took so many elements from that show with to sort of portray my sort of interpretation of it i've got the big floofy dress i've got the jacket and i've got um a little tin lunchbox in the shape of a tv and i've put rose's face on the front i made a faceless mask there's so many elements of it that i just uh i think it's a great episode as well just to sit and watch it's just i don't know the queen's coronation it's just fun i think but for you it's more about the the links between the episodes and the way that yeah the way they're all tied together and you don't really realize it's happening until at the end and it all just comes together and it's and then you go back and you watch you're like wow that's that that's that so you don't realize what you're watching until you go back and watch it and it's all that someone was leaving you little like narrative clues the narrative doesn't stay static in that sense you can keep returning back to things and finding something new to notice and realize why the writer was leading you down a certain path i find it so interesting you have children have you introduced them to doctor who yet i i have tried to several times there's some that they think are fun so we'll watch them like aliens of london they think it's hilarious that there's farting aliens (laughs) they've watched dinosaurs on a spaceship but for the most part they don't really like doctor who and i'm like what have i done wrong (laughs) (laughs) do you think it's something that they will appreciate more as they get older um i don't really know they don't really have sort of they have sort of short attention spans for the age like the ages they are if something hasn't caught their attention really quickly, then they're on to the next thing. Yeah, I'm not sure if the, they will for, like have an appreciation for it, but I'm just happy for them to sort of be kids at the moment. 
so I don't really mind. That's what mum likes, you know? (laughs) This was not my first venture into Doctor Who on this show, but it was lovely to get to look at it again in the podcast format, which affords me a little bit more time to kind of do some more in-depth research and to look at one ear specifically. And um, I think the things that we've touched on today about Russell T Davies and really focusing on the characters and a world as opposed to just the stories is something that I would find much more satisfying as a viewer Um, and I'd really love to go in and watch a few more of those episodes now kind of with that knowledge in the back of my head because I think I will enjoy them a lot more. So thank you Jenny. That's fine. And then I'll happily talk about Doc 2 to I'm blue in the face with anybody so... So the next of your choices today is a film, and you've chosen August Rush, which is a 2007 American musical drama film directed by Kirsten Sheridan and produced by Richard Barton Lewis. And it covers the story of an 11-year-old musical prodigy living in an orphanage who runs away to New York City, the product of a charming Irish musician and a sheltered cellist's romantic night together. When Lila, the cellist's father, keeps her from meeting the musician again and removes her from her son, telling her he has died, Both Lila and Louis, the Irish musicians, life's journeys are irrevocably altered. Evan, our 11-year-old musical prodigy, begins to unravel the mystery of who he is whilst his mother is searching for him and his father is searching for her, all while discovering he has a unique musical gift. So, do you remember the first time you saw this film and how it made you feel when you did? I can't really sort of remember the specific time. I think I was like in my last couple, my last year of college maybe my first year of uni because it used to be a film I would just put on in the background when I was trying to do coursework and stuff because it was just sort of it just for me it was like a feel-good film it was a bit weird but it was a feel-good film for me (laughs) I don't know there was just something about it that just sort of appealed to me it's the way there was music in everything music connects us like who when you're stressed who doesn't go and just sort of just listen to the wind in the trees the waves on the beach birds singing there's music everywhere so like it was sort of explores and expands that sort of yeah and that was one of the main things that i found through my research of the film um is the idea that it's kind of redefining the idea of what music is really um And that music can be found in those beautiful mundane things like the sounds of birds in the trees and the air on the grass. and and Yeah, especially as it's sort of set in New York, you get the subway, you get the traffic, you get people yelling, kids playing basketball, there's all sorts of cars honking. So it ties all that in and you get sort of a symphony going and then the world crashes and then it comes up again. and It's like... um... A soundscape I suppose in real time um yeah using music and film there's a huge discussion and you know we're really showing the significance of this and the various characters relationships to music is one that's heavily articulated throughout the film it's a medium that holds a huge amount of emotional weight for everyone you know obviously Evan's musical gifts are given the most screen attention but we know that he's the product of two musical parents so Louis is a musician and Lila is a cellist and she even rediscovers her playing ability over the course of the film so is the film's exploration of that devotion to music something that really resonated with you when you saw it? Uh, well, I'm not really a musically gifted person. I don't, I can't sing, but I'm always sort of, there's always some sort of music playing. So I like the idea, like, if it's right to say, one of my sort of in-between choices that I couldn't decide between was Take That, because Take That is always playing. 
but I was introduced to that through my mum and so that's sort of we've been to gigs together and stuff so like there is a music that plays for all of us and it all connects us back together so I think one of the wonderful things about music is that you don't have to be musically gifted in order to kind of recognize its emotional weight and and value and it is something that everyone has some sort of relationship with I think it's you know, it's on different levels of intensity for people. I would say I'm someone who intensely loves music. Um, I'm, <laughs> I don't know what it's, you know, it's obviously different for everyone, but something that everyone can take on, everyone can embody in their own lives in, in some format. And I think the film shows that you don't necessarily have to be insanely gifted at music or incredibly talented like Evan is in order to, to see it in the everyday world. And it kind of yeah. makes the idea of, of music more accessible because it is about finding music in those everyday occurrences and and everyday sounds that you construct and and put together to make well symphonies in some cases but also just (laughs) it's the music of life isn't it it's the soundtrack of life that's what music is which i really love how do you integrate music into your family life because one of the things that the film deals with is that idea of music and family and how music kind of connects families um it brings the three members of our musical family together at the end of the film and i wanted to know is that something that you take into your life like how do you bring it into your family life there's always almost always anyway something playing in our house um my kids hum a lot well they play a lot of games but who didn't in this lockdown Mm. um but they pick up the tunes to the the games they're playing and they would just walk around humming the songs there was a lovely moment the other day I have a Lila. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's <laughs> One of my so twins lovely. is called Lila. She were, she had a, a tablet and she was like, Mommy, can you put the music on here? And she went and got a set of headphones and she's just in the garden, sun's blaring. She's got headphones on. She's swinging away going, Here I am. <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> that's... But that's what I used to do. That's, what, that's a lot of what I do. So like, I could see myself in them they can see themselves in me there's always something playing so it's a i think it's a great thing to have Mm. i think it's definitely it's definitely a tool for expression and that's something that we see throughout the film with evan especially because you know he begins the film as a supposed orphan and i suppose it's quite difficult to have something to cling on to in terms of identity when you know your family is not around and for most children i suppose that's their main point of of reference is their family and that's where they begin to kind of construct their identity um and music kind of becomes the way that he accesses that um and i think the film is a really it's a really lovely reminder of how music kind of does that for everybody on some level it might not be on the level of playing your own symphony um, <laughs> as evan does at the end of the film but i think it kind of reminds us all that we have used music at some point in our lives to construct our own identities and also to connect with other people and revitalize yeah, like existing you, relationships exactly that was one of the first times we met was dancing to music i think it was whitney houston oh there was a lot of songs being played that (laughs) yeah one of the other things that is kind of running throughout this film is family the theme of family 
Um, I'd say the film is quite evenly weighted in terms of being both about Evan's discovery of music as a salvation point for him and also about his quest to be united with his birth family. You know, when he's at the orphanage, he's constantly made fun of because he is adamant that his birth family are going to come and find him. He says he can hear the music, which is what's going to bring them. But he doesn't want to move on from where he is because... If he goes, how will they find him? But the music, he can hear the music, hear his parents, so they are going to come find him. Mm, exactly. That's one of the best articulations of how the two themes marry in the film. So those seem to be the two points of connecting with his identity for him. And you were a mother, so obviously family is very important to you. Um, and I wanted yeah. to know, you touched on it briefly earlier, but did you discover this film before or after you became a parent? Before, when I said oh. it was probably... Um, I think, there was, yeah, there was the element of, like, there's always something going to be connecting everyone. I'm a very family person. I think you've said it as well. I am so mum. You are very mum, yes. <laughs> yeah, I look after everybody. Yeah, it was before, and there was... Um, so you got Lois, who's chasing a love story. Mm-hmm. you got Lila is chasing her son. Evan is chasing his family. Mm-hmm. And they're all very sort of... They're individual stories, but when you put them all together... And then also you've got... There's a, there's a slight Oliver twist in there as well. Yeah. With um, the wizard. You've got Robbie Williams. Mm-hmm. Wizard. So he's very sort of Fagin. And then you've got the other little boy, Arthur, who's the Artful Dodger. So there's very sort of Oliver twist themes in there as well. So it's sort of... You recognise the story, but it's a different story. mm so I suppose those were more points that you could connect with watching it before you had children yourself. Um, yeah. How do you think your relationship to the film has changed since having children? Obviously, Lila has a large portion of the story. <laughs> um, and a lot of it is about searching you know, relentlessly for her son, even when it does seem to be at every point she is told there is no hope. Um, she continues to believe. It's a point in the middle of the film where she's on, she's in a phone call with her friends and she's just like, I've always felt him. I known he was there, even though she was told he wasn't. Mm. She's like, I can hear him. She's like, I've, I've got to find him. So I don't know. There's something I don't. It's like it's an actual thing. It's a weird thing. But there's something called like the crying baby. Like when you're a new mum mm-hmm. or a mum anyway, you even if you're you know children around you can hear your baby crying. Really? I've had that a lot of times. Like, my kids are sound asleep in bed and I just hear crying, so I've gone up to check on them and they're just completely out of it. Mm. And I'm like, I could just hear crying and I know it's one of them, so I, like, I've gone to them and they're absolutely fine. So it's, an, it's an actual thing. Yeah, that, that instinct. It's something I find fascinating and obviously I don't understand because I'm not <laughs> a mother. But, um, you know, my mum has spoken to me about those sorts of guttural instincts that you have as a parent. And um, I suppose the film articulates it really well, like really cleverly in terms of using music as something that we can mm. all recognise um, and, and cling on to, because obviously not everybody watching is going to be a parent. Um, and when, yeah. you, when you are, I suppose it just hits on a different level. But by using music as this physical, tangible thing that they're all connecting with, you kind of... It's articulating those instincts and those guttural feelings that you get as a parent around children. Is it quite emotionally involving for you to watch now, given the main storyline is about kind of family separation? Um, well, I, so there was, I watched it yesterday for the first time in a long time because, like I said, my DVD went missing. And it was just sort of... It sort of brought Lila's story more forward and pushed Louis 
the story back because I wasn't really interested in the love story aspect. He just seemed like a pining teenager going, I've lost my love sort of thing. It was a one night stand. Um, mm. And he's running around going, Lila, Lila. And <laughs> you just sort of lose interest in that. And then, then it's become about um, the connection between Lila and Evan, mm. even though Louis meets Evan first. There's a moment where you think, oh, there is a bit of a connection, but he doesn't sort of understand. He doesn't realise what's going on. He doesn't have a parental connection. He's just sort of connected through music. But then, like, the first time Lila sees Evan is on the stage and the music's pulled out and she's like, that's my son, sort of thing. Whereas Louis meets him and it's just like, he's quite musically gifted for an 11-year-old. And it's not until right at the end of the movie where Louis meets Lila in the audience... Then they, she smiles and then looks up at Evan and then mm-hmm. he looks and his face just drops. You're like, huh, that's when he realises and he's met him before. So. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I found kind of most prominent is that end scene with Lila and Lewis trying to find each other through the, the crowd. But actually, Lila is, is looking for Evan. You know, she is completely drawn yeah. by seeing him on stage. Whereas we see Lewis is kind of gravitating towards her. She's gravitating yeah. towards Evan. And it's only really in that last moment that we see things fall together for him, whereas she's yeah. known all along and she's got that knowing smile on her face like, oh, finally, you've, you've decided to to work it out. Um, and we don't <laughs> actually get that final resolution where they all come together as a family and there's a big hug. No. You don't really get that. Um, but you do get that knowledge that they're all aware. And yeah. actually, it, it feels like Lewis is the last person to kind of join the party <laughs> in that respect. He, like I said, he just acts like a a whining pining teenager yeah so it's quite an affirming film for lila then in terms of her storyline as a mother yeah there's a like there's a moment in the in the like child services where like the guy's like right um i think i know the child let me find his file and then she's looking at the missing child wall Mm. and she just finds his poster and then the guy comes back like this is this is him and she goes yeah, well, I know because she's seen his picture on the wall and drawn to him. So, mm-hmm. so she just like she feels the connection through a poster, and then the music just pulls them all together. I suppose it's that idea of, again, I'm very cautious to chat about kind of those feelings that you get as a mother because obviously I'm I'm cripplingly aware <laughs> it's something that I haven't experienced, but as best as I can imagine, it does a really good job of affirming those instincts that you have when you're a mother and those feelings that you have and also the protectiveness as well I guess that you have of of your brood yeah I think I'm a bit too protective sometimes but yeah I was like we're gonna look after them (laughs) that's one of the things that I find really jarring is that if um, Lila's dad puts him up for adoption and then doesn't even know where he is it's like that's your own flesh and blood Mm. like as far as I know my family Terry's family if anything happened to us these kids would be looked after they wouldn't be put up for adoption and then left to the system Mm. he didn't even know where he was so she was like where is he and she goes he goes I don't know like how how could you even do that to Mm. a child that's your own yeah so I did touch on it Uh, But Lila as a character, obviously her portrayal in the film is hugely weighted around the fact that she knows she's a mother implicitly and she'll stop at nothing to find her son. What do you relate to in Kerry Russell's performance? And also, how much of your own identity would you say is accounted for being a mother? I I think that's the first thing that people sort of, especially when I turn up with four kids in tow, they know I'm mum. But even when I was at work and the kids weren't there, everyone knew I was a mum because of how I talked to people. Like some of the things I was asked to do was to sort of keep an eye on people who need 
a maternal touch rather than a front of house member mm-hmm. trying not to cause trouble sort of thing. Um, I went to work to sort of find my identity as Jenny again because mm-hmm. I had just become mum and that's all I was. But there is an element of me that will always be mum even though I was working. So, like, yeah, I do identify a lot as mum, so there is that. Do you think that's something that you're... Are you comfortable with that? Um, or would you rather it was weighted a little more in terms of Jenny as Jenny? I, I, I've been trying to claw it back. There is, like, I felt very lost when I went back to work. Mm. So um, I sort of just needed to find myself a bit. So I sort of found a bit of a medium. But even my mum used to say when we were growing up, I was like the mother hen child. I would always make sure everyone was all right. So there, it's always been there as part of me. I was always going to be a mum. Mm. So nearly 10 years in now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. What do you find to relate to in Kerry Russell's performance as Lila in the film? Oh, yeah. Um, well, because... Uh, after the accident where Evan's taken away and she stops playing music, she becomes a music teacher to kids. So there's she's always going to look after the kids. There is that instinct. And I think a lot of people can see that. Like when the, I've been left in to care for a group of children, I care for all of them as much as I can anyway. I will not overstep my boundaries, but go to the kids' level rather than be another adult telling them what to do mm. sort of thing. So I do quite like... The fact that then, yeah, she's she's gone on to teach children rather than sort of just pine away. And I suppose that idea that, um, you know, you said it was always remarked upon that you had a maternal instinct even before having children. And I suppose, you know, Lila is told that her son has died and she channels that into something to do with children, which could be yeah. very painful, actually. It's probably extremely painful if you're told that you've lost your son to then go and seek out a career that um, involves children yeah. <laughs> quite exclusively. I think it's in the film, there is a bit that sort of juxtapositions those scenes where she's teaching a young child and then the child runs off to her mum and then Evan's standing in the Washington Square mm. um, and he's watching mums and children play and he's crying. <laughs> silently because there's no one there to console him but then there's all these families running around him and it's just the way they play right after one another is like they want to be together but they're not sort of thing Mm. i wanted to ask because obviously this film is so inherently about motherhood on some level um have you introduced the film to your own children i haven't actually no because i said um i lost my dvd and i watched it for the first time the other day yesterday when they were at school and i'm just like Okay, it's not quite the same the way I've obviously remembered it a different way because I was a different person back then. So I may do it when they're a bit older because I don't think it's sort of on their level sort of thing. I think it's a bit more of a grown-up film for as bad as how immature my kids are because I am very happy just for my kids to be kids. Mm, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I'm quite happy for them just to sort of... We'll watch cartoons and stuff until we're a bit older and then we'll explore those sort of things, I think. Film as a medium as well is um, it's quite interesting because it can be considered quite digestible or, or even passive. But the more shows that I record for this podcast, the more I realise it's, it's far from that. What's your relationship with film like and how is this film representative of that? Um, well, as I've said it before, like I like something because I like something, not just because it's mainstream. Like Obviously, it's been... A bit harder to look at August Rush because it's sort of it was out and then it disappeared I think mm. considering the cast it sort of just disappeared but there are big films I like there are small films I like I don't know we just always sort of 
Like, we've made it a thing in our house. We have a pizza movie night every Friday where we put on a film Aww. and we eat pizza as a family. My kids, if it's Friday, they always know it's pizza movie night. They After about half five, the games go off. We start picking a movie and we cook the pizzas and we have pizza movie night. So there is always... Just sit down and watch a movie as a family time. Mm. So it's it's... Again, it's like that reminder of connection and it brings you back yeah. to yourself. Um, I think film is, is a really good medium for that because it is something that's quite easy to engage with on a superficial level, I suppose. And you can do what I do for this show and you can go away and research and watch the film <laughs> and kind of dive a lot deeper. But actually on the surface level, um, it's a medium for connecting with people. Yeah. It's something to be watched as a community, as a group. Oh yeah, especially like, because uh, going back to it, where we work, um, when we started opening up again and my kids are like, can we go see a film? Can we go to the cinema? Mm. It's a day out for them then. And they're like, we're all going out together and we might get some lunch, but then we're going to go and sit together and watch a film, enjoy a film together. And yeah, so there's films are everywhere, aren't they? They really are. Sometimes with this show, it can feel a little bit like people pick certain films to challenge me or make me think critically about something. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't always have to be intellectually taxing as a film for it to be evocative or an interesting pick for the show and this show is all about heart ultimately and the works that have ended up meaning the most to my guests throughout the course of their lives and sometimes it's the most honest and kind of quote-unquote humble narratives that end up sticking with us and I can really I can see that in the way you speak about this film um, it is famously difficult to get hold of, but it's one I'm definitely going to go away and watch now. From the way that you talk about it and also through my own independent research, I think I've got a pretty good idea of the feel of the film and it sounds very much like a hug, something inherently comforting and uplifting, which I think we could all do with a little bit more of at the moment. Yeah. I think when I had my interview for the job, randomly they just throw at me, so what's your like favourite feel-good film? What's the film you just put on? And I hadn't watched it in years and I still said... August Rush mm. because it's just one I've I've watched a lot when I was younger and it's just stuck with me yeah well that's what Art Histories is about it's about the things that stick with us <laughs> so your final choice for today's show is Good Omens which is a book originally it's originally called Good Omens the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter which a 1990 novel written as a collaboration between the English authors Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman and the book is a comedy about the birth of Satan yes I, I know that sounds crazy but it's true and the coming of the end of times and it tracks the events by the angel Aziraphale and the demon Crowley to sabotage the coming of the end of times having grown quite comfortable and accustomed to their surroundings in England. Aziraphale and Crowley form a tentative friendship over the course of history which sort of blossoms into something more ambiguous but we will get to that in a little bit. There's one subplot involving a mix-up over the birth of the Antichrist, Adam, who grows up with the wrong family in the wrong country village, and another subplot involves the summoning of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, each having an individual personality. In 2003, the novel was listed at number 68 on BBC's survey The Big Read. So the franchise originally concerned a book, but it's since birthed a hugely successful six-part television series for Amazon and the BBC, which was released on the 31st of May 2019. I came to the Good Omens universe through this series and watched it completely blind to the novel. 
So my interviewing might be slightly coloured by that, but I've since gone back and rewatched it of my own volition. And I remember thoroughly enjoying the multi-stranded story, the balmy diverse characters and the self-aware darkly comic world that Pratchett and Gaiman had constructed. So that's where my story with Good Omens begins. But I wanted to know, where did yours? Was it the novel or the series that kicked off this love affair for you? It is a fairly recent one for me, to be honest. Um, What actually pulled... It was me and my friend in because we found Zurafel and Crowley so relatable was the trailer, when they released the trailer for the miniseries. For Good Omens. They, um, so when they released the, go- the trailer with um, David Tennant and Michael Sheen, me and my friend, we just watched it and we just found the characters so relatable with how our friendship is. Mm. Even though we said we would never cosplay characters from a trailer because what if it comes out and we don't like it? We cosplayed Azurafel and Crowley in the March before it came out. Really? Yeah. So I was, obviously I was Azurafel and my friend was Crowley. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we done that. And then since I've read the book, I said I've been to one of the book talks in London. I'd, on Twitter, there was we'd, we'd had a, like a fan picture taken at Comic-Con and I put it on Twitter saying, right, one, should I go to Neil Gaiman's talk about Good Omens? And two, should I cosplay? And he retweeted it saying yes. Oh. <laughs> so off we went in cosplay. And then like once we got the tickets, it was announced that Michael... Sheen and David Tennant were going to be there as well so we were just sitting there going oh my god we're in the same room as these guys it was amazing um it was so funny they're actually hilarious together Mm. and um so yeah we sort of it's all yeah it all sort of started from when the trailer was released in preemption of the Amazon Prime BBC adaptation I remember seeing the trailer for it as well and that was something that really piqued my interest um and it's interesting that you say one of the main access points for you was the relationship between Aziraphale and Crowley because one of the most integral human experiences is relationships in all their forms and the wonderful tentative decidedly ambiguous friendship between Aziraphale (laughs) and Crowley is one of the most successful narrative portrayals of just how nuanced and complex these can be um, so what's your take on this famously undefinable pairing? Do you see a, a whisper of romance there? Because to be honest, it was something I was gunning for pretty much from episode three. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, there's um, there is definitely a love story in there, isn't there? It, there was something that the, I believe Neil said on Twitter, like everyone's like, are they gay? And he's like, well, they're an angel and they're a demon. They're not male because they're... That's just how they choose to present at the time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a scene where Crowley is the nanny and presents as female. They're not gay because they're not male. They are an angel and a demon. They are two different entities who love each other. Mm. You think they do love each other? Oh, there's definitely a love there. Like, me and my friend identified each other. We're, and we're two girls and we, we're not in a relationship. I'm married with four kids. But I think there's probably a love between me and my friend because we've known each other for years. And the fact that we mm. saw this and we just so related to these characters from like how we identify ourselves and our friendship that we just Mm. sort of we fell head first deep into this universe it's like they've got this wonderful fizzing chemistry but also like you said we do see just how long they've been a part of each other's lives you said that you relate to it because of how long you and your friend have been together and in episode three which i keep referencing but it was one of my favorites you know we get this beautiful montage detailing Aziraphale and Crowley's initial meeting in the Garden of Eden to their involvements in various monumental historical events throughout history and the way their interactions kind of 
develop and intensify over time. And, you know, any kind of long-standing relationship that you have in your life, platonic, romantic, ambiguous, anything, you'll you'll be able to take something from yeah. the way that Zirafel and Crowley react. And, you know, we see their initial meeting and there's a lot of friction there. And then, obviously, as we get later on down the line and we see their involvement in various historical events, we see how they start to defend one another or protect one another, look out for each other. It's this beautiful trajectory that they have. I wanted to know, obviously, the, the magic lies in their relationship together, but we do see elements of both characters in isolation. Do you have a favourite of the two? Uh, could you pick one and why? Um, I couldn't really, um, but I think that's because through my own research, from especially from the talk we went to, is because... Zerfa and Crowley started out as one character and then Neil and Terry, they sat down together and they fleshed it out and they become two characters. I believe that's what it was anyway. So like for, it was from a, an original short story that Neil wrote and then they just evolved it into what we've got now, um, that they were originally one character that became two. Mm. So I said, well, like me and my friend, we just sat there and related to the characters so much more, which sort of pulled us towards it. But there was elements of the other characters as well, which we related to so even though like we when we cosplay i do a Zurafel, she does crowley i think sometimes our relationship is the other way around where i'm a bit more crowley mm. and she's a Zurafel, but i think that's one of the beautiful things about it as well is that you know because one of them's an angel and the other one's a demon it would be so easy to assume that a Zurafel is good and crowley mm. is bad and that's the only way it ever stays but actually the more you watch the series, um, the more you see them bleeding into one another and starting to influence one another. Yeah. Aziraphel becomes decidedly more mischievous um, and even starts to turn his back on the angels a little bit. And Crowley obviously softens so much. <laughs> we see a lot more of his sensitive side, which I absolutely just adore. And yeah. I think that's something that the whole universe does really well. It would be really easy to assume that the story offers us a clear-cut lesson in morality because we've got an angel, a demon, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the angel Gabriel, and the Antichrist, with other characters such as Beelzebub popping up at various yeah. points throughout the narrative too. However, in Crowley and Aziraphale, we have two incredibly multifaceted and complex characters who, whilst certainly embodying the elements of light and darkness they are supposed to represent, start to influence one another over the course of history and end up being much more complicated than one-dimensional representations of good and bad. Is there something about the way that the story deals with good and evil that appeals to you? Because it's quite an unexpected approach in a narrative that could have easily been quite straightforward with it. Yeah, I think it's, there's a lot to be said about that last scene in the Ritz where um, Azurafel's like, if, if you weren't at heart just a little bit of a good person and then Crowley comes back and says, uh, if you weren't just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing mm -hmm. that like no one is inherently good no one is inherently bad we're all a big mix of stuff mm. and it's just how we choose to act on it another little random anecdote for you that last scene from where they switch yes <laughs> that was written for the show that's not part of the book really so that was a, that was a new thing i always loved that last scene because of just the way then michael and david then switch roles but they could do it so convincingly that you don't realize what's going on until they switch back and you're like what is yeah. going on and Zorofel's standing in hellfire and crowley's bathing in holy water they shouldn't be able to do that <laughs> 
and then they, you're sitting on a bench and then they switch. You're like, but they were so convincingly each other that yeah. even the angels and the demons didn't know. They just mm. sort of got alarmed that they were something in between when actually they were just imitating each other. Exactly. And it's definitely the idea, like you said, that um, when they are in the Ritz and they have that conversation, which I remember distinctly because it is one of the <laughs> most touching moments in the series, Um it's that idea that both of them are made infinitely more likable by the fact that they're borrowing traits from one another and absorbing <laughs> traits from one another because Aziraphale can sometimes be a little bit obnoxious in just how good he is, particularly at the beginning of the series. Um, and, and Crowley sometimes is a little bit nauseating in just how sort of hell-raising he is. Whereas, you know, once they start to become a little bit more influenced by one another and their relationship deepens they start kind of embodying traits of the other in their own personal lives we end up with two characters who are infinitely more likable and relatable than they were at the beginning of the series and i think it makes a really important point by kind of showing this that it's it's almost impossible to be inherently one good thing or one bad thing even for angels and demons who should really be the most kind of clear-cut versions of those sort of moral standpoints for us yeah especially uh, was it in the first one where like the demons are meeting to say what they've done to get souls and they're like we've done this terrible thing to make these people horrible that we'll have their soul within a couple of years and crowley goes um i brought down the phone network he's like a lazy demon but that yeah. is something that would drive a lot of people crazy. <laughs> I caused the traffic jam. I made the M25 in the shape of a like a sigil to the demon and everyone, like, they're just charging up power to the devil by going around mm-hmm. it in an angry traffic jam. So he's like the lazy way of being the worst that he could be. But then he doesn't mm. always, like, he doesn't always want to be the bad person. One of the hugest draws of the Good Omens miniseries for me is the fact that whilst there are clearly definable supernatural elements to the story you know our primary protagonists being an angel and a demon uh, there's the presence of the antichrist we've got the four horsemen they are blended in a way that absolutely shouldn't work but absolutely does work with the very recognizable human forms and ideals you know particularly in the show Aziraphale and Crowley appear to us as humans the antichrist is a young boy named Adam growing up in a country village um, and the four horsemen too could be mistaken for some sort of amped up hell's angels crews they appear on motorcycles and they ride across the desert is it this blend of the obviously human and the very supernatural is it as apparent in the novel or was it kind of really brought to life for the miniseries this will sound really bad for me as a fan but I actually can't remember I read it when the trailer came out in between the, the trailer coming out and the series being released I read it a lot has happened since then <laughs> yeah and uh, so I can't actually remember I got the general gist of the things going on but um yeah I can't actually remember <laughs> do you think that it's something that the series does really well though put it on a screen the way it is I think yeah it's it's like the whole situation of it all it's like this could happen sort of it's like they're on an airfield in Tadfield and they manage to yeah. bring around a nuclear and catatonic something that's going to end the world if the antichrist becomes the bad person he's meant to be but because the antichrist is so human because of the way he's been raised his friends bring him out of it and he's just like, no, I just want to live. Mm. Especially in when the devil appears saying, you are my son. And then the, the boy, the Adam just goes, no, you're not. You're not my father. And then through Satan comes the dad who's raised him with his license plate, which is TARDIS spelt backwards. Oh, amazing. <laughs> There's so many Doctor Who Easter eggs in it. 
Mm. But um, yeah, he just drives through, and they're like, "Adam, what are you doing?" He's like, "I'm sorry." Like he's like, "This is my dad now. The Satan is my dad. I'm not the Antichrist. I'm a boy." And this is my dad. It's really interesting because we are introduced to all of these characters who should have so much power and influence, like the angel Gabriel and, you know, Beelzebub and also the four horsemen and the Antichrist. But actually, they don't seem to have too much power at the end. It's those human relationships and influences. And actually, Aziraphale and Crowley's love for humans and how wonderfully self-reflexive they are and how they're always juxtaposing themselves that that kind of forces them or inspires them to prevent the end of times so kind of throughout there's this idea that it's humanity that makes us powerful and it's our very human feelings and relationships and the influence of other humans that actually can kind of override these really seemingly powerful supernatural elements that are supposed to, in in this universe, kind of control us, which I find really interesting. Yeah. So um, how much of our love for a universe or franchise is defined by the actors playing certain roles, do you think? Because another of your choices was the Doctor Who era, and there was David Tennant in that too. And obviously David Tennant plays Crowley in the series. There's a love for him running throughout. So how much of your love for Good Omens is informed by your love for David Tennant, do you think? I think that was probably one of the things that probably pulled me towards it more than if it had just been something that was coming out. Because there mm. are things, like, if it's listed as a horror, I probably won't watch it, even if David Tennant's in it. Um, I watched Jessica Jones because David Tennant was in it, and I couldn't get into any, any of the other Marvel miniseries on Netflix, but I mm. could watch Jessica Jones. But David Tennant pulled me towards it. I do get, sort of get the pulls towards the things because of people I know. If it's sort of piques my interest, I'll have a look, but then... If it's something I know I won't like, I probably wouldn't even watch it. Mm. It's this idea that one of the wonderful things about David Tennant is that he is so adaptable. And you mentioned it earlier on in the podcast and that he seems to do something different um, in everything we see him in. And um, I suppose if you were already kind of quite a devoted fan of his, to see him playing a demon with that haircut as well. (laughs) The haircut was a a huge draw for me. The many different hairstyles so many different hairstyles um it must have been quite intriguing like how did you find his portrayal of Crowley like what did you think of it um sort of the way he just swaggers in and these two tight jeans he's just he's very sort of he's a presence that you can't ignore Mm. so sort of even though you know he's Crowley you know he's David Tennant because he's just that's like even though he's got different hairstyles you just recognize him that's mm-hmm. Dave Tennant. Whereas I had seen Michael Sheen in other stuff, but I didn't really recognise him. Now Michael Sheen's very quite prominent in what I... Mm-hmm. Because now I recognise him as a Zurafel. So when they came together and during lockdown and they did the stage for BBC, which I like to believe led from Good Omens. I think so as well, definitely. Their friendship as well and the stuff that they just do is just so... It sort of personifies actors a lot of time, especially Mm. before I went to Comic-Cons. You just see actors as actors, not as people, I think. Yes. You don't sort of think of them as people. They're just someone on a screen. But then I went to start going to Comic-Cons and you're actually seeing the actors in front of you. And they're like, they're actually sort of corporal beings in front of you. They're people. But then sort of stage brought it to a different aspect where now you can see a bit of their relationship and their characters coming into it. I know it was staged, so it's not their... It's like over-dramatised. <laughs> but if they weren't friends to begin with, that probably wouldn't have happened as well as it did. 
Mm. And then how well they relate on screen as well in Good Omens. They just have like a real chemistry working together, I think, just sort of comes across as an easy friendship of how they manage to portray Aziraphale and Crowley. Mm. It's pretty magic. And we see, obviously, we like to think that Good Omens kind of sparked off a lot of the, the projects that they've undertaken since and staged, obviously. And it's really nice to see the impact a narrative can have on sort of real life work and uh, the relationships that we have in, in our own lives um, with other people. So you mentioned it, but your love for this world and these characters is one that's taken you to lots of places. You know, you've explored the book, the series, you've cosplayed characters and you've attended the book talk, as you said. Could you talk a little bit about cosplay and how it helps you articulate your enthusiasm for the franchise on a different level? Uh, well, so we we cosplayed from the trailer, so we didn't sort of have a complete in-depth how the characters were being. We just sort of, right, so we can relate to them as a character. So we dressed as the character, but we were still ourselves because mm. we just felt like our friendship sort of was encapsulated in that trailer that we saw. That just sort of pulled us. That was like the spiral. Now we're all the way down at the bottom. We're very deep in this, this fandom. There were so many aspects of it that we just sort of related and brought into it that mm-hmm. it was very identifiable for us to do it. So I suppose it appealed to you on like on a superficial level to begin with, drawn to how the characters look and that interaction from the first trailer. The cosplay started from the trailer where we found the friendship mm-hmm. and we f- reflected in ours. So that was in March. The talk was in May. There was a lot of superficial parts to it, but the original it originated from just being able to relate to the characters. Mm. And then sort of we did start touching the superficial parts of it. Like I said, I obviously dye my hair quite blonde. My friend then took upon herself to dye her hair red. Oh wow! <laughs> we went that deep. That's commitment. <laughs> We'd been to a picnic where there was a whole load of other people, and I've known people who I wouldn't have met before. We went to a picnic in St. James's Park, because, you know, that's what we do. But, um, yeah, there was a Beelzebub, there was Antichrist, there was so many different people. My friend hired a big car. We met some of the people we met at the picnic. We've then gone on, like, a location drive, and we went to Tadfield. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we went and had a picnic and a drive around. We found the church that they're sitting outside and the road mm-hmm. that they walked down, post office. So we did well, all pictures down there. We were all sort of casual cosplaying. And again, it keeps we keep coming back to that, but it's that idea of connecting with yeah. people. Um, it's such a wonderful platform to kind of springboard off and make these connections, but also, I suppose, breathe new life into existing ones. Like you said, you know, you and your friend who've been friends for such a long time. I suppose maybe it's helped you sort of rediscover that connection and now it's something you can explore with a new dimension through that show oh yeah i i introduced her to comic cons so uh she's so deep into comic con she's like there's one thing i missed you in lockdown i want to go to a con like i took her to guildford comic con it was tiny and um the, the next thing we were like right now come with me to london let's go to mcm and now she's just so enthusiastic to go to cons and do the the atmosphere that you've just find there it's just like geeks unite mm. and it's all sorts of fandoms and it's like as long as you find the right people there's no sort of judgment you can just go and be a nerd and it's fun and i suppose um that's a wonderful thing that i've always thought about cosplay from a kind of observer's point of view is that by putting on these other outfits and putting on, you know, some would say kind of out there costumes. Um, it actually gives you the freedom to be more yourself than you might get to be otherwise. 
Oh, yeah. You're standing out in a place where everybody is standing out and you're happily standing out together and it's wonderful. Yeah, one of the first cons I went to, I went with my sister and her now husband and they were in cosplay and I wasn't. Mm. We're going through all the London tube stations and they're like... Is it weird that we don't feel weird going around in costume? It's like, is it weird that I feel like I am being weird not being in a costume yeah. because I was with them yes. in my own clothes and they're Guardians of the Galaxy, maybe? Mm-hmm. And they're just going through as Gamora and Star-Lord and I'm just standing there in my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I feel weird not being in a costume now because then when, when you get to the XL and everyone's in a costume and it's great seeing how, like, how much creativity people put into these things as well, how like involved they are in what they love that they do this stuff Mm. yeah it's definitely an outlet for creativity on that on that level isn't it i already loved the good omens miniseries um it was something that i watched kind of independently and really really enjoyed but at that point i hadn't really explored much fantasy um in terms of the genres that i gravitated towards as a viewer but doing this show um you know i've started to explore more fantasy fiction as I've gone through the series you might have noticed and this has made me really want to go away and read the book now I really want to spend a little bit more time in this universe because I was listening to a podcast that David Tennant did with Neil Gaiman which was so fascinating I would recommend to anyone and one of the things that Neil Gaiman seems to really embody which actually Russell T Davies does as well is that fleshed out world that you can really see characters inhabiting and I just I want to spend a little bit more time there so thank you, Jenny. Well, there is this thing where they said almost every person who has read Good Omens has lent it out to their friend and either not got it back because they've lent it out to another friend or they've got a dogged version that's come back because it's just so red. So I do actually have a copy I could lend you. Oh, that would be so wonderful. <laughs> Next time I see you. So your chosen mediums today were a series, a film and kind of a novel series franchise. So obviously visual media is very important to you. Could you articulate as best you can why you think that is, what it is about having a visual standpoint that you find easier to connect with? I think it's this is all based on your senses really, isn't it? If you can see it and if it's something you can relate to, you could probably feel it and remember what it was like. So when it puts you in situations where you can just relate to it so much more Mm. being able to see it rather than just especially with like books as well you're using your imagination you come up with a world and then you go and talk to it about someone else and their world's different but sometimes when you have something to watch as well everyone's seen the same thing Mm. but how we interpret it might be different but it's fundamentally the same thing so uh we just find a point that we can relate to and the world becomes this massive, to quote David Tennant, big ball of timey wimey wibbly wobbly stuff. <laughs> Had to get that in there. <laughs> I'm so glad that you brought it back to David Tennant because I was just going to say, lurking throughout your choices today has been a huge love letter to David Tennant. He's there in the Doctor Who era and obviously features in Good Omens as well. So what is it about him that you love so much? I don't know. It's sort of... It's, he was there through my college years and my uni years and it was just I could always just put Doctor Who on Mm. and it was always there so and then obviously Chris only had one episode so there's only so much of an episode you can rewatch. but David has a massive scope of episodes that you can just put on and watch like one of my somewhat embarrassing memories is um, I put on one of series four the like the Poison Sky and so that you had Donna and Martha and they, I fell asleep and it just played through 
and then the doctor's daughter came on and I woke up to the calls of Jenny come on and I'm like what David Tennant's calling me I was like no it's not it's um it's the tv I'm gonna go back to my coursework <laughs> this idea that he he does embody something different in everything he plays but it's always a very he's a very reassuring presence on screen i find oh yeah if you especially uh there was a couple of when he was on last leg and like someone asked him to reassure everyone and he just stands up because everything's going to be all right they just like you want to be reassured you go like watch that clip and you're like okay i feel better now mm. he does have that presence doesn't he if you had to sum up each of your three picks in a sentence that would sell it to a listener, what would you say? It's fantasy finding family, isn't it? Yes. Because you've got, you've got all the family stuff related to in Doctor Who. You've got, obviously, August Rush is finding your family anyway. But I think Good Omens is like, they all started off, they're an angel, a demon, a human, a kid or whatever. But at the end, they're all on the same playing field. So at some point, there are relationships, there's families, mm. there's... Especially, like I said, with Adam going, you're not my dad, and his real dad comes in. It's family, so you've got fantasies, and then you've got finding families. Yeah, and fantasy finding family in Good Omens, because they do become like a chosen family at the end. Yeah. I love that so much. <laughs> um, Jenny, it's been such a pleasure having you on Art Histories this week, and your picks have taken me on a true trip through time and space. I've marvelled at the surprising humanity hidden within every Doctor Who episode within the Russell T Davies era. I've learned that music is everywhere, if you know where to look for it, with August Rush. And I've reignited my love not only for David Tennant and Michael Sheen, and that is always a good thing, but now I want to dive into the Good Omens universe even further after our chat today. I'm so thankful to my job for bringing you into my life and for you giving up your time to chat to me. Um, it's been such a joy and I can't wait to work with you again soon. Oh, I hope so. Not too long now. <laughs> and that's the end of my chat with Jenny. Oh, I love her so much. I'll be back next week with a brand new show and a brand new guest. Thanks for listening. <laughs>